0: and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV, you may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always... All our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There, I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu.
1: Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com I-N. That's pro.stateaffairs.com
0: I-N. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Al Hubbard. Speaking of a friend of P.E. McAllister, we're going to talk about him here in a second. Al uh, has done so many things, tremendously successful in the private sector. He has worked in the White House for two separate presidents. He's one of the top education experts and philanthropists here in Indiana and really across the country. He has been incredibly kind to me in my career, both professionally and politically. And I'm just thrilled to get a chance to talk to you. How are you doing, Al? I'm doing fine, thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. Uh let's just I just mentioned his name and it it's kind of difficult for me and people who've listened to the Leaders and Legends podcast for the past 3 years, we actually this is our 200th podcast featuring you, but have heard me break a few times when I mentioned PE's name and all that he did. Uh Talk a little bit about how you got to know P.E. McAllister and your friendship with him. Cause I know from having lunch with him, he thought the absolute world of you.
1: Well, that's kind. Um, I thought the world of him, you know, he's someone, uh, he was a generation or so older than I, and I didn't, I wasn't raised here in Indiana. Uh, I moved here, uh, when I was almost, when I was 29 years old and, uh, Soon thereafter, I heard the name P.E. McAllister because he was such a uh, successful business person and a successful civic leader, and uh, really had never met him until uh, I became state party chairman in 1993. Uh, And so I called on him to uh, ask him for support, and uh, I immediately liked him. He was uh, truly one of the few Renaissance men or people women or men I've ever known. Uh, he was so extraordinary, not only his business acumen, his political acumen, but his varied interests, varied knowledge. He uh, was a student, great student of history, which I know you all had in common. And uh, and he just did so many things and was so curious. And he was active till he turned 100. And then he decided to go Join his maker. So uh, he was certainly a special person.
0: He, he would he could talk about Indianapolis, PE could, in a way that very few other people could. Jim Morris could, Mark Miles could, uh, or could, can right now, and others. He was so proud of how Indianapolis changed from the time that he got here in the 1940s till his passing at 101 in 2019. Did you guys talk about that much? Because I know that he felt he was very high on your political acumen. But when we would sit around and just talk about Indianapolis, his eyes would light up like this is what can happen when everyone works together.
1: Oh, we did. And, of course, uh, he was very uh, he and a few others together worked to create uh, the uh, make Marion County into a single governmental entity. And, of course, they were very supportive of uh, Dick Luger, who became the first mayor. I think that's correct. This was prior to my moving to Indianapolis. He became the first mayor of the city-county government and was, of course, extraordinarily successful. And then he was succeeded by Bill Hudnut. And, you know, we just had a long series of very successful mayors. and and PE was one of the architects, one of the key architects in creating this this new form of government that uh attracted fabulous leaders. So yeah, he was he was proud of that, but he was not someone to brag, uh, but he was he was very proud. He cared a whole lot about our city. He was remarkably generous, uh, in terms of not only his political donations, but his charitable donations and um uh, Anyway, he, basic, he, he basically saved Garfield Park. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Yeah, I love Garfield Park.
0: You mentioned that you are not from Indiana. Where were you born and, and how did you matriculate here?
1: I was born in Jackson, Tennessee, which is uh, about 80 miles northeast of Memphis. So it's a rural community. was uh when I grew up, there seemed to be more uh, cotton gins than uh, gas stations. <laughs> and I went to uh, high school there, public high school, then to Vanderbilt, and then the Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. And at Harvard Business School, I met a fellow named Ed Clink, and we became fast friends. And we started talking about going into business together, and he ended up moving to Indianapolis. I moved to Memphis and he uh became president of a company and thought he could buy it and so asked me to quit my job in Memphis move to Indianapolis and and buy this little company with him and so i quit my job i moved to Indianapolis and the deal fell through but we decided we would find something else we were committed to finding something we just had the passion to be our, you know to run our own business and meanwhile i had a blind date with my wife and uh, that. Oh,
0: you and Kathy happened. met on a blind date?
1: We did, right after I moved to Indianapolis. So, uh, yeah, the best thing that ever happened to me, I might add.
0: That's Mary and Kathy not moving to Indianapolis.
1: Yeah, well, all of the above, but Mary and Kathy, <laughs> Mary and Kathy was at the top. But, of course, that wouldn't have happened without moving to Indianapolis.
0: So uh, When did you move here?
1: Uh Thanksgiving 1976. You probably weren't even born.
0: <laughs> I was born in December of 67 so uh-huh. I was 9 but you were here for the blizzard of 78 and a lot of uh-huh. the other big events that uh, happened in the late 70s early 80s how did you start to form your opinion about Indianapolis I mean Jackson Tennessee is obviously not a a thriving metropolis on the like Nashville or Memphis and I'm assuming that there's got to be 6000 places in Tennessee named after Andrew Jackson I I uh, just, there has to be, well, you would think so. Yeah. Uh, but what did you think about Indianapolis as it started to grow? Cause you got here just as things were exploding.
1: Well, you know, that's when Jim Morris was head of the Lilly endowment and Ted Bohm was head of the sports corporation. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, was first 10 years I was here. I was totally consumed with trying to get, get our business off the ground. And, uh, so I wasn't involved civically, uh, but I was observing and, uh, always had a great interest and it was, uh, it was remarkable what, you know, we wanted to, they had decided they were going to create the, uh, make Indianapolis amateur sports capital of the world. And I think they in fact did that. And, uh, it was, it was a remarkable achievement and obviously couldn't have happened without one, the leaders and two, the Lilly endowment. And, uh, And so it's, uh, uh, it was remarkable to watch, but it was also, I I love the leadership, you know, with Dick Luger, he had left Bill Hudnut was the mayor when I moved here. And, uh, then I think it was Steve Goldsmith right Mm -hmm. after him.
0: Yeah. One of the most remarkable podcasts we did was with someone and actually Mark Miles was, we were sitting at lunch at the steering on the East side there at 10th and Emerson. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, which is currently owned by my friend Casey Kerr. We grew up together and I had talked to Mark, I think, about the podcast or he'd been on and we were just chatting about the direction of it. And he said, you have to have David Frick on. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know him, but I don't know him that well. And he goes, you have to have him on. And he was so right. To me, David Frick, along with P.E. and probably Jim Morris, are the three most important people in Indianapolis's last 50 years who who didn't hold office. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the leadership of the city at that time, David Frick has to be at the top of the top. Right. No, he was he is a remarkable person. And uh, I think he
1: was he was chief deputy mayor uh, mm-hmm. there under. Hudnut, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah.
0: And, you know, the thing that that Mark told the story was about how when Indianapolis was negotiating to bring the Colts here, the fact that David Frick went to Harvard Law School Mm -hmm. made a difference because all these East Coast lawyers treated David as an equal as opposed to just an Indiana Hoosier. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I guess I got to ask. Since you're a graduate of Harvard Law School, is that how you treat people from Indiana? You know, just like, hey, where'd you go? We haven't heard of you before. Uh, hardly. Uh,
1: <laughs> and, you know, I've never practiced law and uh, I did pass the Tennessee bar, fortunately. But uh, anyway, I, uh, I know lots of very, very smart people who went to uh, many different law schools, including I use uh, both the um, McKinney School and and uh, Mickey Maurer School.
0: Oh. And my my son graduates from Purdue this semester and starts at the McKinney School of Law in the fall. Well, congratulations, that's terrific. Well, I laughed and told him, and I he had to have a letter of recommendation and asked me to be helpful. And so the letter I was able to procure came from Jim Voyles. Oh, good. And I said, Andrew, if this doesn't get you in, you don't have a chance in hell. Yeah. That's great. Well,
1: I'm did sure you know, he did very well at Purdue. So
0: He did. He enjoyed it. And, you know, it leads me right into the next person I want to ask you about, of course, and that's Mitch Daniels. The big news this week is that he decided not to run for the Senate. He was a remarkable governor and a remarkable university president. I have to thank he's come on the podcast twice and I have to thank him uh, for not raising tuition once in the four years my son was there. Uh, how did you meet Mitch Daniels and and what did you think of him as, as governor and his foray into higher education?
1: I met, uh, I was telling Mitch this, uh, I, I don't know if he, re, I mean, I'm sure he remembered when we met, it was in 1973, believe it or not. Mm. Yeah. 50 years ago. And uh, the, What made me think about is Jim Banks called me to support him, and I said, you know, I've known Mitch for fifty years. I did the calculation, and obviously, I'm going to be with Mitch if he runs. Uh, And so uh, I met him because I was dating a girl, and you'll know the last name. Her name was, her name is uh, Chris Servos. Her dad was Bert Mm Servos, and uh, she was going to Wellesley, and I was at Harvard, and I came home to visit and she got involved in the uh, Luger uh, buy campaign of twin of night 1974 19 no yeah 1974 yeah of 1974 and uh, so I met Mitch through her and that campaign so there you go and Mitch was right out of you know he graduated from Princeton in 72 so he was but he was he was he was, he was uh, creating the ads I mean, he, he's, he's remarkable. His, his intelligence his IQ just is off the charts.
0: Did he, so how long after 73, did you see him again and say, Hey, we know each other.
1: Well, what happened? Let's see. So, uh, I ended up moving here in late 76. And I, I remember I contacted Mitch Luger had just defeated, uh, Vance Hartke, and so mm-hmm. it was going to the Senate, and Mitch was going with him. We had lunch. I said, "So, Mitch, who should I look up uh, since you're not going to be around for me, <laughs> you know, to socialize with?" And he, he said, "Mark Miles. That's who you should look up." So, but I already knew Mark Miles. But anyway, that's uh, I'll, I'll remember
0: that. How did you meet Mark? Because when he came on the podcast, Mark Mark went to North Central, as did. Uh, Deborah Daniels and Mitch Daniels, but but Mark's younger than than Mitch, but he told me that he got in he got involved in the '74 campaign because Deborah Daniels says, "Hey, my brother's running this campaign. You should do something." I think Mark was still at Wabash at the time.
1: Yeah, he took he took some time off, and so he worked on that campaign. My girlfriend worked on that campaign, and that's how I got to know Mark.
0: To me, Mark Miles is the most impressive leader I've ever met in terms of if you've got a big giant project and you need someone to run the whole damn thing, choose Mark Miles.
1: Yeah, well, he's he's successfully done that a number of times uh, with the Pan Am games and with the Super Bowl and obviously what he's done with the Indianapolis 500 and IndyCar. So, no, he's a remarkably talented person. And what he did with ATP. The Association of Tennis Professionals, which he ran for 15
0: years. You know, I've told him, I said, you're probably one of the few people who's ever negotiated with Roger Pinsky, Jerry Jones, John McEnroe, and Fidel Castro. <laughs> there you go. That's true. Did he? Great- oh, absolutely. Did he? Right story
1: when he went to Cuba, to saw Castro.
0: <laughs> I know. Wasn't Castro am I remembering correctly? Wasn't Castro in his pajamas? It was like two in the morning or something like that. It was
1: like two in the morning. I can't remember if it was the pajamas or whatever, but uh
0: or maybe Castro just wore his fatigues twenty-four-seven. I don't know. Do you think of Indiana in terms of you got here in seventy six? And then, you know, we had had Bob Orr and Otis Bowen and and a lot of other significant leaders. Evan by even, but that Indiana post Mitch Daniels is considerably different than it was pre Mitch Daniels.
1: You mean that Mitch had such an impact?
0: Yeah, from a business perspective and a and a uh, uh, perception.
1: Well, I think he, uh, yeah, he. I mean, he definitely had an impact. He uh, made it a much friendlier place for business. He. Reduced taxes. He reduced regulations. He uh, introduced vouchers for education, vouchers for to give kids uh, choice. And that's been expanded two or three times since then. So, you know, he was a uh, re- remarkable leader with a great vision. And, um, you know, I wish he'd run for governor again. Uh, I mean, he, he, but obviously he decided not to do that and then thought seriously about running for the Senate. and ultimately. As announced yesterday, decided that wasn't right for him either.
0: Is it, did his decision surprise you? Oh, not to run?
1: Well, I mean, I've been in touch with, we've been talking along the way. So, um, I, uh, from the get go, he said it's something he was going to seriously consider, but he was concerned whether he would actually, how effective he could be. And, uh, whether that's the way he wanted to spend the next eight years, two years running, and six years in, in office, he said, "I would not. I'd run for one term only, uh, and focus on uh, three things: one, uh, dealing with the uh, the deficit and uh, the unsustainable situation with entitlements, Social Security and Medicare, and the fact that that is going to subject low-income people to be to it's you know to running out of money." Uh, mm-hmm. Number two is, and of course, uh, the huge deficit is just a ticking time bomb for our country and our economy. Then deal with the whole China situation and and deal with, uh, you know, basically work to to bring both sides together. Now, in his statement he put out yesterday, he also added uh, that he would have wanted to have worked with, on immigration, which I think uh, you know I've talked about that, and you know makes all. I mean, immigration sh- needs to be fixed, and it shouldn't be that hard. You you got to you 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 got to uh, seal the the southern border so you don't have illegals coming across. You got to give the dreamers an opportunity to become citizens. You got to give those who are already here an opportunity to become legal, and then we need to re- reform our our legal immigration system to attract the best and the brightest because immigrants have a giant impact on our economy and our country. I think I, I read a statistic that 30% of the four 400 are, are immigrants. It's just, it's just amazing. Mm. So um, anyway, Mitch would have been fabulous and I'm disappointed he's not doing it, uh, but I understand.
0: We try to keep things relatively light here on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're talking with Al Hubbard. As I mentioned to you in my pitch, uh, I build my podcast. I branded as informative, entertaining, and comfortable. But you brought up the Republican Party. You've been involved for multiple decades. Uh, one of the reasons it seemed that Mitch Daniels was going to run for Senate, and obviously I'm not speaking for him, is that he would bring a, perhaps a Reagan-esque quality since that's more of his generation. And he worked for president Reagan. Uh, what do you see as the future of the Republican party uh, nationally and in Indiana? Cause I mean, I've been uh, held as you know, and probably through your grace held several positions in the Republican party. Um, do you see problems ahead or opportunities or both?
1: Well, I'm not a, a Trump fan. I uh, I think his po- the policies uh, his policies during his four years were outstanding, very positive, but his rhetoric and his whole uh, approach to the life is <laughs> uh, it, it's not what we need in our leaders. So at the same time, he he recognized uh, that there. There's a big portion of our society who feel like they've been left out. That these are the people, the 55% of Americans who have no post-secondary degrees, no degrees after high school. So their wages are fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars an hour. And they feel like trade and immigration has robbed them of their standard of living. Uh and uh Donald Trump understood that. I hope we on the Republican side have a leader who's gonna come along and will understand this the this group of people and will appeal to them and work to to for them to feel like they do have a future they can improve their standard of living uh and that uh but it's not donald trump so i if if we find the right leader uh our party will will thrive because the the uh uh the democratic party is just they're they're out of touch they are so left wing they're socialists they don't believe in capitalism they think everything should be regulated they think the federal government should control everything and that and they think that uh you know left wing liberal social policy is what the american people want and that is not what the american people want
0: and that's one of the reasons why so many people i thought wanted Mitch Janos to run for president in 12. And I think he said at the time he thought he would win the nomination and then lose to then President Obama and wanted one want, wanted Mitch Janos to run for the Senate to bring the, the sort of core conservative Republican values back to Washington, D.C. that have been not corrupted, but certainly have been some of the sheen taken off of it. I always say when asked about Trump, President Trump. I said, he never learned the value of silence. And if he had paid attention and studied Ronald Reagan, he would have learned it because no one was better at just being "Oh shucks, shrug your shoulders. Don't ask me about them. Ask them about them as Ronald Reagan was. And I wish that he had had more of that quality. Well, he also, it just didn't treat people well.
1: And, and, uh, that, He he like you know he he didn't have parents that taught him to show respect for everyone and uh, and to tell the truth. I mean I'm sorry, it's just that doesn't work for our leaders. Um, And so I you know he has loyalty to no one other than himself and his family. Uh, So it's it's um, but I agree with you. Mitch would have appealed to the Trump base as well as traditional uh, free market Republicans, and that's what we need. And unfortunately it's not going to be Mitch Daniels, but Hey, we got a great stable of, of, of candidates for president. Uh, it looks like uh, uh governor, a governor uh, Haley is going to uh, uh, announce Nikki soon. Haley, mm-hmm. Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, DeSantis has been an incredibly effective, both uh Governor and politician. He won by 19 points in Florida for governor to get reelected. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mike Pompeo. I'm reading his book right now, which is quite impressive. i um, a huge fan of Tim Scott, uh, African-American yes. senator from South Carolina. Uh, I mean, we've got s- some great people running. And so uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, one of them w- other than Trump, will get the nom- I'd be happy with any of the above, the ones I've just mentioned.
0: Well, we have obviously a connection to the Trump administration, and that is the vice president, Mike Pence. Uh, how long have you known him? Were you able to stay in touch with him much during his time as vice president? You're one of the few Hoosiers who's actually worked in a top position at the White House and could kind of explain or know what what the operation was all about.
1: I met Mike when he ran the second time for Congress. Uh, This was uh, 19, I I, I get confused. I think it was 1988 or somewhere around there. And we've been friends ever since. I used to go on his radio program uh, and obviously it was very supportive when he ran. Well, I was supportive when he ran for Congress, supportive when he ran for for governor and, uh, you know, was i think he did an excellent job as vice president and i w- was certainly glad he was there i know it had to be difficult at times uh and i'm certainly i was relieved when he stood up to president trump and did the right thing on january 6th uh to and did what the constitution called for which was to accept the the uh the votes from the states and uh which meant the election of president biden so, uh, and we've stayed in touch, but we're not tight, but, uh, you know, he's a very busy man and he's another one who is very seriously thinking about running for president.
0: We've been talking a lot about politics. Uh, what was your first political memory?
1: Oh my, well, my, first, I went, I, I remember this, this is uh this will test your, but knowing you, you know, history so well. So in the sixth grade, Mrs. Noel, this public schools in, in in Jackson, Tennessee, we had a mock UN, and I played Nikita Khrushchev.
0: <laughs> Did you bang and your shoe?
1: I took my shoe off and banged it. <laughs> and uh, from that point on, I've been interested in current events and politics. So that's sort of what uh, that, that that whole that that mock UN had a huge impact on me.
0: What? <laughs> I'm sure all your friends would. Well, the next time you throw a party at your house, take your shoe off and bang yeah, it on. There. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I like to ask people, I've asked Evan by and obviously his answer was predictable. But Bart Peterson and others, you know, what made you become a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat or however you want to describe yourself? You know, you grew up in the Eisenhower years, which quickly became the Kennedy years, uh, went through the civil rights movement, Vietnam all that in college, what made you become a Republican? And and were there times where you maybe in August of 74 when Nixon's getting on the helicopter? Did you question like, you know, is this really the right party for me?
1: Well, the first uh, presidential election I was able to vote in was 1968, and I voted for Hubert Humphrey. And then the second one was 1972, and I voted for George McGovern. And then in 76, I supported Jimmy Carter. And then in 1980, I supported Ronald Reagan. Now, what happened between 76 (laughs) and...
0: and I want to know what happened between 72 (laughs) and 80.
1: I started my own business and it's, and it came to appreciate the importance of the free market and capitalism and low taxes and low regulations. And uh, so it, it was a wake up call to recognizing that the re- Republican approach of, uh, again, uh, encouraging people to take responsibility for themselves, giving them the opportunity to create their, you know, very successful livelihood uh letting them decide how to spend the money they make not not the government deciding how to spend the money they make uh and reducing regulations so it's easier to start new businesses those are the things that very much attracted me and i'm a i'm a i am ai am think uh i'm I'm pretty much a libertarian uh with some exceptions so
0: My buddy, Chris Spangles, loving to hear that. Uh, Were you at all, you know, 50 years ago, (coughs) if a Republican asked you if you were born in a barn, it was an insult. These days, it's more like a candidate recruitment pitch.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Do you think that's a good direction for the Republican Party to to go to, to move?
1: So what do you mean by? In
0: other words, you know, We were seen as the party of the Chamber of Commerce and that sort of thing. And then even in National Review and other smart publications, there's a lot of positing and discussion about, you know, can the can the Republican Party become the party of the working man and the working woman, the working families? Do you think it can? And do you think that's a natural role for us, given your earlier comments about the Democratic Party, in your view, being out of touch?
1: I think for sure we can. I mean, Ronald Reagan, I mean, you remember the Reagan Democrats uh, that that was those were working class folks who supported Ronald Reagan. And it's because I think we as a party, we believe we believe in freedom. I mean, it's a fundamental uh, premise and fundamental principle of government. And uh, as number one, like we believe that people should be able to choose where their kids go to school. Uh, which is critical as opposed to forcing them to go to failing uh, traditional public schools. Uh, we, we believe in people being able to choose their own doctor, choose where they live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, and, and we believe in providing opportunities for all Americans and, uh, and particularly those from the working class or from low income uh, families. So, yeah, I, I, I feel very I mean, I'm proud of the Republican Party because we do appeal to um, the working class as well as the, the entrepreneurial class. You know, I think we're less of a party of big corporations, mm-hmm. and I think that's just fine because I think big corporations and the leadership of big corporations, they, they, they sort of fit with the, the, the Democrat Party. They, you know, they want the government to be helping them. Providing them with subsidies, they want to support the the left wing social agenda. They're so afraid of offending, you know. Maybe if they have ten thousand employees or a hundred thousand employees, they might offend a, a few of them because they 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 don't want to uh, because they, uh, you know, that they're they're willing to support the woke policies of the Democratic Party in order not to offend a, a very small minority and of, of their employees. So. I I think we're no longer the party of big corporations. We're the party of small companies, entrepreneurs, uh, hardworking Americans. And we also believe, by the way, and we believe people should take responsibility for themselves. It's not the role of government to hand out uh, to support people. Uh, We believe in giving people opportunities and let them support themselves and grow and and, uh, be responsible for themselves.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest on the podcast is entrepreneur Al Hubbard. Is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most?
1: Oh, my. There's so many I admire. You know, have at it. uh, Well, very long list. You know, I I think I'd put uh, Bob Orr up there. You know, he was sort of the first politician I met because my future wife was working for him. And he was uh, such a believer in entrepreneurism. He was such a believer in international trade. He was someone who was a doer who wanted to solve problems for Hoosiers. And he was the kindest person. He really cared about the people who worked for him, uh, forever. And, uh, so he, uh, you know, he he was a remarkable person. But you know, his his lieutenant governor, whom people don't talk about anymore, he's still living and and doing well. But in his mid eighties, John Mutz, he was a great political leader, and he would have been a great governor. And I'm sorry he wasn't elected in 1988. Um, so we we've had, you know, obviously Mitch Daniels. We've talked about him. He is one of the, the great governors of all time uh, in our country. And he and he was remarkable at Purdue, freezing tuition for eleven years, which in real dollars meant there was a twenty-five percent cut in tuition at at Purdue. Now that's a, a remarkable thank you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, as a as a as a tuition payer, you can very much appreciate that. So, you know, Bill Hudnut was phenomenal. Steve Goldsmith, he was. I mean, I think he was our. One of our greatest mayors, and I'm so sorry he didn't get elected governor. And uh, when was it? 2000? No, no, 1996. Uh, Dave, Mac- mm-hmm. Dave McIntyre's ran in 2000. So, uh, anyway, we've we you know we've been very fortunate in our state.
0: You know, we had John Mutz as a guest on the podcast. He was oh, one of it? our very first guests. He came on with his friend Louis Mayhern. And, oh, how fun! That, it that was, was fun. It was it was, it was fun. I am enjoying the the. I've done several where the Democrat, or a Democrat and a Republican come on together, and that's included Mike McDaniel coming on with Robin Winston, your friends, mm-hmm. obviously John Dylan, Toby McClamrock have come on together. Jim Kittle, who I know is one of your closest, right. came on. He came on with Ed Tracy. That was oh, a. Uh, that was the beginning of the expletive deleted. Portion of the <laughs> leaders of <Legends laughs> podcast, uh, but you know you, we actually also did a podcast, and I don't know if you're a listener, but I can send it to you uh, on the governorship of Bob Orr, and had uh, Darlene Sherman, Bob Grand, and Mark Lubbers on as well with Jim Shella co-hosting. I'll send it to you. It was a great discussion. Uh, Mister Lubbers started out things with a bang. That's all I can tell you.
1: Oh, good. Well, he's uh, quite entertaining.
0: Why did you decide going back to school a little bit to get both an MBA from Harvard and a law degree from Harvard? I knew you had an MBA from there, but I didn't know you had a law degree from there until your incredibly wonderful executive assistant, Jennifer Richardson, sent me your bio. What was the point of, I mean, I'm not criticizing you. Obviously I'm in awe of it a little bit. What was your, the point of doing both?
1: Well, it, you know, I was I I actually graduated from uh Vanderbilt as a pre-med chemistry major and uh even took the med cats had the applications and uh decided at the last minute not to apply. And then uh you know, I I I discovered that Harvard had both this new program called the MBA JD uh, program which was 4 years uh, as opposed to 3 and 2. And I applied and got in. I was shocked. And uh, so it was the second class. Mitt Romney was in the third class uh, right after the class I was in. And, uh, you know, I just thought it would hopefully prepare me to be successful. And I actually, you know, most people say they did not like law school. I actually, I loved law school. Uh, I just thought, I mean, I enjoyed learning about the law. I think it's fascinating. I love reading about Supreme Court cases now. And uh, uh, I've become very close friends with Mike Ludig, who's gotten a lot of press recently. He's a neighbor on Bale, Mm -hmm. Colorado. And, you know, it's so fun talking to him about all these uh, these legal issues that we're facing right now from, uh, you know, abortion to, you know, the role of uh, agencies and uh, versus the Congress versus the the executive branch, et cetera.
0: Did you have I remember asking David Frick, who graduated from Harvard Law School, if he right. had any "quote unquote" famous or well-known people in his class, and I think he said, I know the name is correct, but I, I may have get the chronology wrong. That former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer was a year or two behind him in at Harvard.
1: Actually, he may have taken uh, Breyer's older than David.
0: Yeah, so he I, may have been a little bit older.
1: Yeah. I took two classes from Breyer actually. And, uh, and a house sat for him. So, and we remained friends. Uh,
0: oh, really? I didn't know. Oh, really? So you knew him that well?
1: Yeah. We went out to dinner with him, uh, uh, several times when I was working in the Bush 43 white house and, uh, he's a delightful guy. I mean, he's, uh, it's funny talking to him. He's very open. He's very smart, obviously. Uh, and he and Scalia were best of buddies. And he said, you know, uh Gino is that uh, what, how do you pronounce what's what's his first name? Antonin Scalia. Yeah, t- yeah, but what'd they call him? They there was a his nickname.
0: He did have a nickname and like I can't Gino think of it. Gino
1: something like that. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Gino and I just differ about uh how to interpret the Constitution. He said, you know, Scalia believes that it the way it was written 230 years ago is the way it was written, and everything should be based on the way it was written 230 years ago. I believe that it's a it's a living uh, constitution, and we should adapt it to current, you know, the the current society. Mm-hmm. And so that's our big disagreement. And I, I thought it was really quite interesting that you know there was no, you know, no, and neither side's covering up what they're doing. They just have a different philosophy. Um, so, and and he he. By the way, by the way, Chuck Schumer was in my class.
0: You stay in touch with him? No. <laughs> All these friends of yours we'd love to have on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, we did a pod and I knew this because I got to be friends with him uh, through Bill Bloomquist, And I'm, I think, you know, Bill Bloomquist, the professor used to be uh, dean of liberal arts at IPUI. He was my mentor over there on the political science side. But through him, I got to be very good friends. Well, I don't want to overstate it. I got to be friends and hung out quite a bit with Andy Jacobs. Oh, yeah. Who I just thought the world of. And we did a podcast on him, actually. His I, wife I, came I on.
1: I actually had enormous respect for Andy Jacobs, too. Terrific. I actually Terrific. voted for him one time.
0: He's the first person I voted for when I got a chance to vote. Oh, that's It was, a, it was Andy Jacobs because my mother was in the Marine Corps, and my mother worshipped Andy Jacobs, worshipped oh, him. Yeah. But he talked about when he... Was running against uh, Hudnut, or Hudnut was running against him in seventy-two and seventy-four for the congressional seat. How they would ride to the debates together. And one of the things that I try to do in this podcast, when I put the Republican and the Democrat on together, and it's always a lot of fun, great conversation, is to show that that still exists. That that so much of what you read about how people don't get along is true but the vast majority of it in my view is not true and the more people get involved in politics the more they will realize that is my hypothesis wrong or please critique it
1: well i i i I guess i agree with you when it comes to indiana and disagree with you when it comes to washington dc i I mean in indiana uh, again i'm uh I don't sense animosity between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, we are we're friends uh and we're willing to disagree with each other uh but not in a disagreeable way and uh we respect each other uh, and I I there's not the the uh sort of I don't know bitterness or uh you know uh the Animus you know, animus yeah, that's a better word the animus that exists in DC now in DC you know there's it's a no holds barred kind of uh uh political environment which is is just inappropriate and I'll tell you something that happened and this this was one of the biggest disappointments I've had recently is the club for growth the ad they ran against Mitch Daniels two weeks ago it was a very Washington thing to do. Dave McIntosh, who is a Hoosier and whom I used to work very closely with, was responsible for it, and it's indefensible, and it was it, it, it's not the way we operate here in Indiana, and I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, it was offensive, it was inaccurate, and it was inappropriate. Uh, so and that's what and David has I think he's lost his his way. And, uh, and lost his principles. And, uh, all he wants to do is pander to his donors and, and his desire to get publicity.
0: It was shocking. And I would have loved to have had a chance to, uh, I write a monthly column for the star and I would love to have had an opportunity to take that ad on big academia. I don't even know what the hell that meant. I'm like, Mitch Daniels has saved me tens of thousands of yeah. dollars. Yeah. Come on. Yeah you were Indiana state party chairman and you were Indiana state party chairman at a very good time for Hoosier Republicans and Republicans throughout the country, 1994. What, what decided, what made you decide to take that role on a and B, did you ever think that you would put your name on the ballot?
1: Well, I certainly thought about it. Uh, you know, I worked for Bush 41 and then we lost and, uh, 92, and so we came home in 93. I still had the political bug in my system, and so decided to uh, run for state party chairman. You know, Rex had been state party chair chair for, for uh, two years, and so I ended up succeeding him. And you know, I I thought about running for governor, but I don't. Uh, I'm glad I didn't. I, I think I would have been. A, uh, not, a, I think I would have been a successful governor if I could have gotten elected governor, but, uh, I'd have to get elected first. And, uh, I would have been running against Evan by there's no way I would have beat Evan by. So, um, uh, so, it, but you know, I wanted to have, I mean, the reason I'm attracted to politics is, uh, <clears throat> is to try to make the world a little better place or try to make Indiana a little better place. And so, you know, our focus and uh, for, for the 94 campaign was to elect people who believed in free markets and low regulations, low taxes, et cetera, et cetera, school choice. And um, uh, so that's that's why I did it. That's why I, I considered running. I mean, I didn't get close. It's just something sure. I had brief discussions with a couple of people uh, about running for for governor, and that was it.
0: You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with entrepreneur and political leader Al Hubbard. Did you have much of a relationship with Rex? I wrote a, uh, Eula, nah, that's not right, a tribute to him in the Indianapolis Star based on my interaction with him. I could tell you that he he influenced me in the sense that sometimes you can't pull your punches; you just got to say what you got to say. And I just am interested. You know, you guys had significantly different backgrounds. And how did you get along, especially when you were both more active in the party several years ago?
1: Well, I'm I'm sorry to report he in 96, he ran for governor and uh, Steve Goldsmith ran for governor. Uh, and I supported Steve Goldsmith. And Rex considered that uh, disloyal to him and inappropriate. And to be perfectly frank, he never got over it. So We did not have, we were, we had a good, very good relationship prior to that. And uh, he was very helpful when I was state chairman. I thought he did a great job as state chairman. Uh, And I was sorry that that happened, but it unfortunately did.
0: And that happens in politics in the sense that I remember talking to uh, the late Matt Tully one time about we were having lunch or whatever, and he had written a column about Republicans and Democrats not being able to get along. And this was 20 years ago or so. And I said, if you want to see real feuds, blood feuds that never go away, those are within parties. They're not between members of the other parties. Is that your experience too?
1: Yes. Another person who's with whom I lost a relationship is Dan Quayle, because in 2000, I supported George Bush for president and he was very upset that I didn't support him for president. And, uh, he essentially severed our relationship. So we have not had any contact since then.
0: You mentioned your time at Harvard, and uh, it's pretty famous that you had a classmate at the Harvard Business School. Forgive and correct me if I'm getting this history wrong. And that person was then George W. Bush before he became. 43. How did you get to meet George W. Bush and how did that affect your your sense of both business and political career or political activity?
1: Well, I met George uh, right after and I I don't call him George anymore. Well,
0: that takes me. you know, we're both smiling because you probably wouldn't remember this. But when I was leaving Mayor Ballard's office, you were very kind. Uh, you, we had lunch at Palomino. Right. And I was trying to figure out what to do to start my own company or whatever. And I ended up doing it you know, through people like you and Michael Connor and Brian Sullivan and others who encouraged me. But I asked you at that lunch, when was the last time you called George W. Bush George? And you said before on Election Day, before Florida was decided.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> But anyway, I met him right when he came to, he, my roommate uh, was from Houston and knew George. And so when George came to Harvard Business School, he came over to, we were house sitting at the time and he came over and we became fast friends. I mean, we weren't best of friends, but we were good friends and we would um, see each other every couple of weeks, go to dinner, or he'd come over to our play, our, our house and we would party and he drank back then, you know, he quit drinking at 40 years old, but, uh, he did not drink any more than the rest of us. It wasn't like he had a drinking problem. Uh, we dated, uh, similar, we dated the same girls occasionally. And, uh, you know, we were, we, and he was, uh, he didn't know what he wanted to do. Uh, and it's interesting that he ended up going to Midland and really sort of following in his father's footsteps. Uh, and then, so we, uh, you know, stayed in touch, but not, we weren't again, super tight. And then when I, uh, well, you'll love this story. This is actually one of my favorite stories. So I decided I was fortunate to be asked in 1986 to be campaign manager for, it was really, or really 87, the beginning of 87, to be campaign manager for Pete DuPont, who was a former governor Mm
0: -hmm.
1: of Delaware running for president. Uh, against George H. W. Bush, Jack Kemp, Alexander Haig, and you know Pat Roberts. Bob Dole. Yeah, Bob Dole. And yeah, 60-
0: Dupont had all kinds of ideas.
1: Yeah, great ideas. And uh, the second day on the job, we were we moved to Wilmington, Delaware. I get a call, and it, anyway, I said, "You know, Al Hubbard here." He says, "Hubs." I said, "George, is that you?" And he said, "Yeah." And he said, "I'm mad at you because I understand you're working against my dad." And I said. I stopped because I hadn't thought about it that way. I said, well, George, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm working for Pete DuPont. And George said, and this is so George Bush, he said, Hubs, we're going to bury you. And when (laughs) we do, I'm going to get your ass down here to help dad get elected president of the United States. And so 14 months later, Pete DuPont, after New Hampshire, he withdraws. And George Bush calls me the next day and asks me to come down and work on the campaign.
0: So. Did he remind you of the previous conversation? No, he didn't have to. We,
1: <laughs> He said, all right, I told you, we need you down here.
0: And what so, was that experience like? I read the Jack Germond um, book on uh, the 1988 campaign. And uh, I'm trying to think, and Jules Whitcover, I was trying to think of his, his partner. Yeah. That's a great book if you haven't read it. Uh, It's it's have you read it?
1: I have but a long time ago, obviously.
0: It was interesting because of the partly because of the description of Mitch Daniels being backstage at the vice presidential debate and his reaction when Quayle compared himself to John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And they have him in the book, quote him in the book saying, God damn it. We told him not to say that.
1: Oh, my goodness. I did not know that. I had forgotten that.
0: Well, the thing is, I had just interviewed uh, Governor Daniels for the podcast the first time, and I hadn't gotten to that part of the book yet. I was reading it, but I hadn't gotten to that part of it. And then Mark Miles, you know, he can tell stories as well, because Mark Miles uh, ran Quayle's campaign in 1980, which beat uh, Birch Bay. Uh, How did you end up working for uh, Bush Sr.? and? Do you have some impressions of the man? Because to me, he seems like the one of the most genuine Americans that ever lived, who ever lived.
1: Yeah, he was a true American hero. I, 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 well, you know, you start by the fact he he volunteered uh, and left Yale for World War II, flew uh, fighter uh, planes off uh, aircraft carriers, gets shot down uh, is saved. And then they ask him to go back to, to go back to the States. And he said, no, I'm not going to go back to the States. I'm going back to my ship. And that was the kind of person he was. And then I think what was most remarkable, I mean, if you look at his presidency and I wasn't involved, I was on the economic side, so I wasn't involved at all in this, but what he did, the way he managed the, the, the collapse of the Soviet union and the collapse of, of the, uh, uh, the, you know, Eastern Europe and the assimilation of those countries into the, uh, well, particularly East Germany and West Germany and, and all those countries, you know, basically promoting freedom and democracy, et cetera. And he did it in a way where there was not one shot fired. He did not take credit for any of it. And it was remarkable achievement. And, you know, he, he, he was, He was an amazing person. He was, uh, his mom taught him to never say I, always say we. And uh, he was just a gentleman through and through. Um, I remember in 1992 when we were in trouble and they brought Peggy Noonan down to write his uh, State of the Union address. And I, I knew Peggy and I said, so Peggy, how's it going? And he's, and Peggy said, you know, we we want him to say I to take credit for what he's accomplished, and and it's just very hard because his mom preached and preached
0: and preached. It's we, not I. Yeah, President Bush called it the great I am.
1: Yeah, oh, the great I, the am. great
0: I am. Uh, yeah, that's you, great. he loses in in, in ninety two, and then two years later, I believe it's ninety four. George W. Bush is elected governor. Right. Where you you were talking just a few minutes ago about he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Did his run for governor and then subsequent run for president surprise you? And were you involved?
1: Well, in 1990, he asked me if he should run for governor. And I, I and I, not that I had any influence, but I told him I don't didn't think so with his dad as president. But anyway, he didn't run. Then he runs in 94 against Ann Richards. I remember watching the, the debate and, uh, you know everyone thought Jeb would win and George would lose and the opposite happened. Uh, and then in 97, uh, 97 he asked and me to come down and spend the night at the governor's mansion, uh, and to talk. And we talked about him running his running for president. And so I got involved in that campaign. I was very, very active in that campaign, basically putting together, uh, uh briefings on uh the major policy issues that a president faces and it was a it was a great experience for me. I mean I was the organizer and we brought in people like George Schultz and and Condi Rice for, and, 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 and Bob Zellick in the international sphere and then for economics Marty Feldstein and John Taylor and John Kogan and Glenn Hubbard and So, I mean, it was just a uh, and it shows you the kind of person George Bush is. He he, he said to me, he said, you know, I feel like I know the state issues, but I don't know the national and international issues. And I need you to help me. You need to put together briefings for me on all the major issues. And so that's what I did. And it it was a great experience.
0: What was it like as George W. Bush's friend? What was it like to sweat out the Florida? debacle
1: oh yeah i uh it was i remember talking to him during that and uh you know it i mean it was it was one hell of a battle it was one hell of a battle
0: did you ever but get this I, sin-
1: but I, I will say this because i've never been a, an al gore fan he and i had we literally clashed big time in bush 41 but uh the way he handled that is truly remarkable truly remarkable
0: and I'd agree with that, especially as it relates to the next thing I was going to ask you about, and that is, uh, what was it like? This is a question I asked Mitch Daniels, and he he, he was interesting because I think his answer was no one's ever really asked me this before. And he started to talk about that day. But what was it like on 9-11 for you?
1: Well, I wasn't in the administration. Uh, I was asked to join the administration, but I it just didn't work with our kids. They were in junior high and high school. so. Uh,
0: I meant it more in terms of like, forgive me, I should have finished the question this way in terms of knowing the man who just had all of this responsibility of this tragedy and everything that came after it thrust upon his shoulders.
1: I thought he was remarkable. I mean, to be honest, he was, I'll never forget him in New York city, standing up, getting that bullhorn and talking to the, the fireman and everyone around him and talking about America. I mean, he, uh, Bush really, I mean, if you, uh, you'd have to say that it was a remarkable how, uh, w- what a great leader he was after 9-11 and uh, uh, how he really helped the country uh, grapple with that. I mean, of being invaded. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, well, I guess we had obviously Pearl Harbor, but at that time of while you wasn't a state. But to have the, you know, to be attacked uh, like that, I guess hadn't happened since you, you, you're the historian since the British did it in 1812 or something. <laughs> yeah, <I don't... laughs>
0: since they burnt the White House. Did yeah. you Do you have you ever watched the video? And it's it's incredibly popular on YouTube. I mean, millions of views. Or talk to President Bush about. When he threw out the ceremonial first pitch that night at Yankee Stadium after 9-11 during the World yeah. Series.
1: I've I actually not talked to him about it, but I, I have watched the video. It's remarkable. It is so special. Yeah.
0: I have a guy who I, don't, I haven't seen in a long time. His name is Jerry Turner. He's a captain. He's a, a pilot. Uh, but in a previous incarnation, Mr. Turner was a frat brother of Mr. Greg Ballard. Oh, wow. And I would see Jerry when I would play racquetball and I was working, you know, for the mayor and he would laugh sometimes goes, I just can't believe the guy who could barely get up after, you know, some party at the frat house is the mayor of a million people. And so with not necessarily putting it in those terms where there are times where you were like, man, the guy who used to come and just hang out at the couch at the house is now the president of the United States.
1: Yeah, you know, he, he, he truly didn't know what to do with his life and he wasn't highly motivated when I first got to know him, but by the time he got to be president, he was the most disciplined person. Every meeting started early. He was thoroughly, he would thoroughly study the materials we would provide for him. He asked great questions. I mean, he was, uh, he was a different person. And so, uh. It was, it was amazing at the same time. He's always been irreverent, loves to joke around, you know, (laughs) just cannot, uh, you know, not, not, uh, find something humorous in whatever's going on. I mean, he's amazing.
0: Did you ever get a chance to have a decent conversation or a a fun conversation with his mother, Barbara Bush?
1: One time, this was in Bush 41. This is when George was George. He had me come over, (laughs) uh, and we were on the second floor where the president lives and Mrs. Bush was there and we, we talked and, you know, she was, but I mean, not extensively, but uh, you know, it was the only time I really had one-on-one contact with her. Although I I did have uh, uh, now that I think about it uh, a few years before HW passed away, uh, I saw Mrs. Bush and ask her about her husband and, you know, I mean, she was, but she, she was, she was a pistol. She was a pistol. Uh, no. And that, that's where Bush gets his, you know, that, that edge to him.
0: He always said, what do he say? I have my dad's face and my mama's mouth.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's you know, good. We have a, just a few minutes left with Al Hubbard yeah. before we ask him the five questions we ask everyone else. And you know what? I need to say this because I just love him to death. I've asked you about all these amazing people. Mitch Daniels, George Bush, George W. Bush, Quayle, Rex Early. But the probably my favorite person in your orbit is Mr. Devin Anderson.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Devin gave me my first job in politics in 1992 when I was working for your friend, Jim Doris Sr. I right. was an undergraduate working at his hotel and Dan Coates came to the Holiday Inn Airport he was senator. Nobody, we all knew who Luger was, but nobody knew who Coates was, but me. And I went up to them and said, do "You want a room just to kind of hang out, and so you're not here in the lobby." And that's the start of my friendship with Devin, which is, you know, if I do the math, about 31 years old now. I think the world of him, and I just wanted to ask you, where would you be in life and business without Devin Anderson?
1: I would. Not be where I am today, that's for sure. He's been a great partner. And, you know, we've worked together now off and on for 30 plus years. And we've been partners now for 12 years. And uh, he ran two of our companies and they were hugely successful. So I and my family benefited enormously from his hard work. And uh, so, no, he's uh, I love working with him.
0: Is there a special line item in the ENA budget for Harry and Izzy's?
1: <laughs> He goes there all the time. Let me tell you. Yeah.
0: We've great. reached the point in the Leaders of Legends podcast where he asked the same five questions of all of our guests. Mr. Al Hubbard, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job?
1: My first job, I was a camp counselor in uh,
0: uh, high school. What was your first concert?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't know. We used to have a lot of concerts at Vanderbilt, and my favorite ones were the Four Tops, the Temptations, uh, Diana Ross, uh, Dionne Warwick. Uh, let's see. Oh, we had. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh uh Otis Road uh, Reading uh the last <laughs> night before he died, unfortunately. Uh so mm-hmm. those were those were, you know, I, I've always been attracted to soul music. And uh we, we used to have those great singers in and uh but I can't remember who the first one was.
0: Well, any of the above would be terrific for sure. Absolutely. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: Right now, I would uh, – well, I'll tell you the books I've read recently that I loved. Uh, Bill Barr's book extraordinary. You'll learn a lot of public policy. Uh, Tim uh, uh, Scott's book, uh, which he was released in August, it's very short. It tells you so much about the man. It's, it's not really a political book. It's about life. It's about redemption. He's a, uh, but, it, I mean, it, it's just a, it's a remarkable – it's very moving and the book i'm reading now which uh it's interesting it's it's so different it's it's pompeo's just come out with a book and it's spectacular and you learn what pompeo's like and he is you know he may be the guy i want to support for president i mean he is he's a tough son of a gun and uh has a clear vision and um i mean it's very different from what you would expect uh political book to be he's very candid about what he thinks about people and usually that's you know bareboating so to speak because you're just going to offend people but um anyway it's and, and of course having worked at the cia and then it's, like it's the state department it's uh, secretary of state it's it, it's it's fascinating so i guess i'm talking about the recent books i've read so you know the other ones i've loved i mean grant the grant book uh i've read that robert's book on churchill i loved it too
0: Oh, the Andrew Roberts book. Yeah. 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 Number four, this is a toughie. Cause I know you're a history buff. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Oh my goodness. Huh. Ah. well, I mean, I mean, you'd have to say you'd like to be there when Jesus, uh, uh you know emerged emerged yeah that that would be number one uh but uh something more more contemporary uh I uh hmm. You know, I, I guess uh, I'll never forget that Oh, I can't remember the name of the movie. It's uh, I could if I spent a little time I could remember it. But you know at the at the end of World War Two when we uh you know won the you know the surrender of mm-hmm. germany i think that would have or the surrender of japan but particularly the surrender of germany it uh i don't know to see churchill do something i don't I, you know to, to be there for one of churchill's great speeches
0: um, the iron curtain speech perhaps
1: oh yeah although I I, I I mean yeah the iron curtain speech i was over here at that college in missouri Westminster Westminster. mm -hmm. Westminster, Yeah, there's a a great story
0: of of, of, I'll send it to you on YouTube of David Brinkley telling a story about how he was on the uh, train with Roosevelt and excuse me, with Truman and Churchill going out there and they were playing poker and all the people were taking Churchill's money and Churchill went to go to the bathroom. And while he was gone, Truman ordered all the journalists to let Churchill win said he saved oh. west he saved western europe we're not going to take his money oh wow that's a that's a great story i love it last question if you could have dinner with anyone living today living today 2 hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose hmm
1: uh I, I, assuming he's, uh, he's, he's gotta be 92 or 93 now, but I think he's still in great health. Uh, might it, you know, I, I, this is probably not who I would choose if I had a, plenty of time to think about it. I, I, I think I'd love to have two hours with Jim Baker.
0: Former oh se- yeah. Former secretary, former Chief of, staff, former Chief secretary of staff, former secretary of treasury right. secretary, won the, uh, Florida battle in 2000. Only he could have won that battle in 2000. Yeah.
1: That's right. So, um, I, and I read the, the Peter Baker book biography of him not too long ago. It's a fabulous book. Uh, so, well, this has been fun.
0: You have been listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies and Indiana based public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl Scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. And as always, our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been leader and legend Al Hubbard, He's been very kind to me, both in my political life and my professional life, and he's a great person to have lunch with. If you can get on his calendar, you should do it. Thank you, Al, very much for your time. Thanks for the kind invitation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com.